I love that line, riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure thou art. And that's a fitting line for us as we turn to the preaching of God's word and of what the, the text of Philippians chapter 3 proclaims to us this morning, that riches we heed not, nor man's empty praise, but Jesus Christ alone who is our inheritance. So if you turn with me now as we turn to the preaching of God's word to Philippians chapter 3, we'll be in verses 1 through 11. Hear now the reading of the word of the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that I may, by any means possible, may attain the resurrection from the dead. This ends the reading of the word of the Lord. May he bless it to us this morning. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, you are the Lord who speaks, the God who speaks and creates with your word. You spoke creation into existence through the word of your power, and Lord, by your gospel, You speak us into new existence and new creation in Christ Jesus by the word of your gospel. And Lord, I pray that you would call life out of death, light out of darkness this morning through the preaching of your word. We ask this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Our text this morning is Philippians, where it is about losing all and gaining Christ. And I wonder if you have been faced with this prospect of losing all in your life, that you fear something in your life right now. Maybe there is some great danger in your life that you are facing, or maybe there are great dangers that you look on at the world around us and they cause fear in your heart. If somebody asked you, what is the greatest danger that you are facing right now, how would you answer? What is it that you would point to? Is it the things that this world right now is eminently, preeminently concerned with? 
Is it open warfare with Russia, with China, with North Korea, with Iran? Is World War III your greatest fear? Is your greatest fear our government being overrun with those who openly advocate for evil? Or our government persecuting those who stand for righteousness? Is your greatest fear inflation? The rising prices of goods around us and your ability to afford a reasonable living? Is it underemployment? Is it unemployment? Is it the next natural disaster? Is it a hurricane? Is it a flood? Is it freezing weather? Is it heat? Or is it something else in your life? Is your greatest danger, the thing that you fear the most, what would happen to you personally? Somebody forsaking you, a friend, a family member, somebody dying that you love, you yourself dying, facing the prospect of death. Is this your greatest fear in this life? And the reason I ask these questions about what is your greatest fear, because in this text, Paul presents to us the issue of confidence. And fear is the opposite response of confidence. When we're confident, we're not afraid. And so what is it for us that is going to give us confidence in this world, in this life? But is there something that we should all fear? that maybe we don't often think about as much as we should? Do we fear our standing before our maker? Do we fear as we stand before God himself? Well, Paul begins with this text that he says, My brothers, finally, I rejoice in the Lord to write to you the same things is no trouble for me and to say for you. This is a bit like a preacher where they get to the end of their sermon and they say, I'm going to say the same thing again that I've already said. And Paul does it again later in this chapter, like a normal preacher, where he reiterates the same thing he's already said. But then he goes on and says, look out for the dogs, the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. And he's warning this congregation about what he perceives as their danger that's before them. What is dangerous for the Philippians is not everything in the world that's going around outside of them. It's what could happen in the church. People coming into the church and doing this act of causing these Philippians to put confidence in their flesh. What does this phrase, confidence in the flesh, mean? Well, what is confidence? We might think of the wonderful movie. uh, I can't remember the name right now. It's blanking out of my mind, but uh, what is that? Yeah, Sound of Music. I know many of you know this movie, but you can think of the young lady, Maria, as she walks around and she says, what does she have confidence in? I don't have confidence in all these things, but what does she ultimately have confidence in? It's herself. Now, we can understand that because we know what it means to have confidence in ourselves. And there's a good form of confidence in yourself that you have studied, you have prepared, you have worked hard to do something, and you have confidence that you have done what is necessary to accomplish a task at hand. But there's a form of self-confidence that is very dangerous. In fact, it's eternally dangerous. But ultimately, confidence is an assurance that the thing that needs to be done is done. You have confidence because the thing that needs to be done has been taken care of. For example, 
When a deposit is delivered into your banking account, you have confidence that you can pay for the things that you need to pay for. When you have studied for an exam, you have confidence that you can pass that exam because you know all the necessary knowledge to pass that exam. But here Paul says, the problem is not confidence. The problem is is what you place your confidence in. He says, these men want to get you to put your confidence in the flesh. The problem with confidence is it's misplaced. They were putting their confidence in the flesh. And Paul is going to spell out now for us what that is. Ultimately, it's the things that we have received in this world, and it's the things that we have done. He tells us here of the twofold fleshly confidence that he has. He says, Christians are those who don't put confidence in the flesh. We put our confidence in Jesus Christ. We glory in Christ Jesus. We worship by the Spirit of God. This is not something that comes from us. But he says, look, if we're going to judge by humanly standards, reasons for confidence before God that we can stand in his presence, I'm going to give you the best resume that anybody could drum up. And here's his resume. The first that he gives us is a list of things that he's received. These are privileges or advantages. These are not things that Paul has done. These are things that he has simply received. He's a beneficiary of these benefits. And Paul outlines his heritage. He says, if you're going to have a heritage, I have the best one that any human on this planet can have. God has called the people, the nation of Israel. These are his chosen people. And Paul outlines his belonging to that people. He says, if you're going to belong to any people in this whole world, the best one to belong to is the nation of Israel. They were called by God himself. And guess what? I belong to them. But he narrows it down. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, which is that he was raised in the right way. My parents did it right. He says, I, was, I am a Jew. Or he says, I am of the people of Israel. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul can actually trace his lineage at this point. After several hundred years of after the Israelites had been gone in exile to Babylon and returned, much of the Jewish people had been dispersed, and it was hard for them to trace their lineage. But here Paul says, I know where I come from, and I come from the tribe of Benjamin, not the northern tribes that defected early and became apostate. No, we remained faithful at least longer than those other ones did. And he says, ultimately, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And if anyone could commend themselves to God, it's Paul, based on his heritage. He says, I have everything that you need to stand before God based on heritage. Paul says, nobody is as good as mine. And we have modern examples of this for ourselves, don't we? Of privileges that we have. Now, we actually live in a culture that is turning against privilege, That privilege is seen as a negative thing. It's improper. In fact, privilege is something to be repented of. Privilege is evidence of inequality, and inequality in itself is wrong. And to have a position of power or a position of 
heritage of this is something that you shouldn't have because you obviously have gained that through disadvantaging others. And Paul does not here critique advantages or privileges as wrong. He says, no, there's benefit to these things. But what he is doing here is showing the ultimate inadequacy of these to give us what we need. He doesn't make them out to be evil. He just says, they can't deliver ultimately on what you think they can do. You might say, I'm an upright citizen. I have been born in this family. I have been uh, born into a Christian family. I have Christian parents. Or I am not like the rest of these people that come from these different regions or places. I'm not like them. And Paul says, no, this isn't what matters. But Paul then moves to a second category of the things that he has done. He moves to the things that he has done himself. And he says, I am a Pharisee. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. And these are the three different ways that Paul is drilling further and further down into showing, look, I'm better than everybody else. And I have the receipts to prove it. I'm better than all of you. As regards these issues here, I was, according to the law, a Pharisee. I belonged to the highest school that you can belong to. I have the PhD. I have all the letters that you need to have after your name so that everybody looks at you and thinks this is a person who's trustworthy and authoritative. He has all of it. Paul says, I was a persecutor of the church as to zeal. Now, as Christians, we might think, why is Paul boasting of this? Well, he's speaking to a Jewish audience, at least to those who are trying to trip them up in, Ju- in Judaism, or a Jewish, Judaistic form of Christianity. And he's saying, look, I wanted to maintain the right, true, proper Jewish religion. I wanted to do it so much that I would stand against anybody who would be in opposition to that. And he saw the Christian church as a threat to that. And he says, look, I stood against it. I was so zealous, I persecuted it. I didn't just stand on the sidelines and think, oh, those are people we should stand against. No, he actually did something about it. Then he goes on. As to righteousness under law, blameless. If you could judge Paul by the Ten Commandments, at least presumably, he would say, I've done it all. I honor the Lord, I love the Lord, and I love my neighbor. I stand for the Lord, I persecute those, I go after those who are enemies of God. I worship God appropriately and correctly. I don't steal, I don't commit adultery, I don't lie, I don't covet. At least that's what Paul thought about himself. Paul says, I've done it all. I've got all the receipts to show that If you want confidence in the flesh, I have it. But why is Paul doing this? What's the point here of listing all of his credentials? We want to be judged worthy. At the end of the day, our hearts long to be judged worthy. We long for people to say, you're good. 
You're a good person. They have confidence in us. We want God to judge us as worthy. We want God to say, you've done it right. Your life isn't a mess. Your life is great. You have all the things that you need. You've received it all and you've done it all. You're a stellar example of what it means to be a great human being. But here's the strange thing about our sinful hearts is that we actually want God to judge us based upon what we do. We actually think that we can stand before God. And so our minds run through the Rolodex of all the things that we think we need to do to stand before God, for Him to approve of us, for Him to accept us. But there's another kind of strange way that we do this, and it might not seem like right away that this person is doing it, but it's still the same fundamental problem. We think of all the ways we need to amend our lives, and then God will accept us. We think, I need to fix myself. I really need to do the hard work in these areas in my life, and then God will accept me. And we go through our Rolodex in our mind of all the ways that we've screwed up that we've failed, the things we've said, the things we've done, and we say, if I fix all these, then I can stand before God. But it's the same problem. It is the same problem. We still think that by making amends, by fixing ourselves, that that's what will commend us to God, ultimately. It's the same problem. It's confidence in the flesh. I can fix myself. I can do this. And then I can have confidence that I will stand before God. So that is confidence in the flesh that Paul speaks of. But our second point this morning, counting everything as loss, is how does Paul respond to this? Saying, I have it all. What does he say? He says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of of Christ. And Paul will now proceed on a threefold way of explaining how he counts all that he has as loss because of Christ. The first thing he does is he counts his previous confidence as loss. He writes off all of these privileges as advantages. He writes off all of his moral achievements. He's saying they didn't gain me anything. They're a loss. They are a debt on my account. I don't want them. As John Calvin argues in commenting on this passage, he says they are dead cargo on a sinking ship. All the good things that Paul had done are useless to him. They're loss. He says, I don't want them. And he jettisons them knowing that he should place his confidence in Christ. Because if he doesn't, he will go down in that sinking ship with that dead cargo that he has. His own self-wrought righteousness is what will bring him down to death in the end. But Paul moves on. He doesn't just count that whole thing as loss. Loss. 
He goes even deeper. He penetrates even further into everything. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What Paul does here is he turns the screws on all of us. Paul is saying, ultimately, not just myself, there is nothing that can give me the confidence I need. There is nothing. I count everything, not just my own goodness, not just my own righteousness. I count everything as loss compared to the worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. See, our natural bent, our natural bent is to rest in anything besides Jesus Christ. That is where our hearts will go always, is to turn to something else to give us confidence. And that's what Paul is warning the Philippians about, about these Judaizers who would get them to put confidence in the flesh, trusting in their works in addition to Jesus's or their works apart from Jesus. And Paul works this out in the book of Galatians in detail against the same Judaizers. He says, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Do you think now that you've come to Christ, he's brought you to him, that you can accomplish the rest of this in your own effort? It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that we are all familiar with. What does the Pharisee do? Who does he thank for his good works? He thanks God. He says, God, you've done this in me. Thank you, God, that I am not like other men. Not like all these tax collectors and sinners like this man over here. You've done this in me. And the Pharisee even attributes his own obedience to God. And that's the sad thing about our fallen hearts. It's not just that we will turn to ourselves. We will turn to anything except for Christ. And what Paul wants to show us here in this passage is that we are saved by Christ and Christ alone. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot do it. See, Jesus is not merely a mediator who improves our lives to make us better so that we can make it to heaven. Jesus alone is the way of salvation. But as if that wasn't enough, if that wasn't enough, Paul drives even further into this counting everything as loss. I count my confidence in my flesh as loss. I count everything as loss. And he goes on. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. I count them as rubbish. Now, this is a translation of a Greek word that ultimately relates to either the sewer, what goes down into the sewer pipes, or into the trash heap. He's not just saying, I don't want it. He's saying, it is the filth of this world. He's saying his own good works, everything righteous that he does, compared to Jesus Christ, is a sewer. It's the feces that fills the sewers. It's the trash 
that fills the dumpsters. That's Paul's estimation of what he has done, all the good that he's done, compared to Jesus Christ. How do you view your righteousness? How do you view your good works? How good do you think it is? Is it good? I mean, maybe in a relative way of speaking, compared to other people, you might say it's better than some other people's, but compared to Jesus Christ, is this your estimation of your good works? And Paul is not denigrating or disparaging or calling useless the things of this world. He's not saying that we just forsake everything and we have nothing to do with this world and we become hermits and go live in the woods in a hole in the ground. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, in relationship to God, everything that I could drum up is rubbish. It's trash. It is asserting that and asking the question of, are you willing to forsake and part with anything of yourself and part with this entire world in comparison to Jesus Christ and what he offers to you? John Calvin again says, For we are not received by Christ except as naked and emptied of our own righteousness. Paul accordingly acknowledges nothing was so injurious to him Nothing was so dangerous to him as his own righteousness. Inasmuch as he was, by means of it, shut out from Christ. Like the question I asked you at the beginning of this sermon, what is the thing that is most dangerous in this world? We think of things outside. And what Paul is telling us here today, the most dangerous thing for us is how we think of our righteousness. That is what is most dangerous to us. In our third point this morning, Paul compares his righteousness that he does to something else. What would motivate him to be so disparaging of himself? You could see a modern psychologist saying, Paul is a masochist. He's trying to hurt himself. You don't think about yourself this way. That's not how you get self-esteem. That's not how you become a confident person. This is the opposite of confidence. He's being cruel to himself. What changed for Paul? Why would he take such a drastic course of thinking? He tells us, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Once Paul came to know what Jesus Christ offered him, he said, everything in this world is a loss. Everything in this world is rubbish compared to what Jesus Christ gives me. Because only in Jesus Christ is found perfect righteousness. It's so perfect that everything in comparison with it is manure. 
It's not even worth comparing to it. It's not even worth looking at compared to Christ. And Paul shows that there's not a dual way of thinking about these things. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I count all these things as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Conjunctions are really important, everybody who studies English. It's not that we have Christ's works and our works, as some other Christian traditions might teach. It's not that we have Christ's righteousness and our righteousness. I count everything as lost in order that I may gain Christ. We don't bring both to the table. Ultimately, we will bring our righteousness to the judgment seat of God, or we will bring Christ. And that is why Paul says, when I found this, when I found this beautiful, perfect righteousness in Jesus Christ, that is what I knew I wanted. That is what I knew I need. And ultimately, what Paul is doing here is fleshing out what he says earlier in this book. In chapter 1, he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. In order to gain Christ, we must forsake ourselves. That's Jesus' fundamental teaching. If anyone may wishes to come after me, let him take up his cross and deny himself and follow me. But how do we gain this? How do we gain this righteousness? Well, it's first, not looking at ourselves. And it's second, looking at Jesus Christ and trusting in it and having faith in Jesus Christ. Martin Luther says, he is not righteous who does much, but who, without work, believes much in Christ. If you die, have you lost? If you die today, have you lost? If you lose everything, the government comes in and says, you're a Christian and we don't like you because you don't stand for the things that we think you need to be standing for. And we're going to take your house, we're going to put you in jail, and we're going to make your life miserable. Have you lost? Have you lost anything? But ultimately, have we lost? Now, that may be difficult. There's sorrow that attends that, but... Have you lost? Because ultimately nothing can compare with the worth and value of Christ our Lord. Colossians tells us that he is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily. God himself dwelling in a man. That through Jesus Christ, all creation has come into existence. And in Jesus Christ, all things hold together. That he is the one who is before all things. And he is the head and source of all things. And it is this one, this son of God, who came down and laid aside every privilege that he had, as Philippians 2 tells us, lays aside all of his privileges 
and humbled himself and took our nature and lived it, lived in a human body, lived his life perfectly before God the Father, and he suffered and he died for sinners. And that is what Paul says, that is what I want to know. That is what I want to know. I want to know Jesus because of what he has done for me. That ultimately, I can't look at all my righteousness because it actually is rubbish. And God knew that. And God had mercy on me. And he sent Jesus to come and save a man covered in rubbish. Not because Paul was worthy, but because Paul was unworthy. And that is precisely what Jesus has done for sinners like us. That he has loved us. He has made us righteous. He has washed us clean, as we read and confessed today. He's taken a trash heap and made it righteous and beautiful. In God's sight. This is what Jesus Christ has done for us. But lastly, there is one fundamental issue that needs to be addressed here. A fellow OPC pastor mentioned to me, we were discussing about how we think about ourselves and righteousness and all of that. And he says, we hate that God isn't keeping score. We actually wish that God would keep score of all the good things that we do. It's why the Pharisees hate that Jesus welcomed prostitutes and drunkards because that meant Jesus wasn't keeping score. The kingdom of God is available to those people. They don't have anything good. A prostitute. A drunk. A tax collector. They're working for Rome. They're working for the IRS, you might say. But Jesus shows, no, I don't keep score. Because you don't want me to keep score. Ultimately, you don't want Jesus to keep score. Now, he has to. He is keeping score. The question at the end of the day is, Whose record are you going to keep? Whose record are you going to present to God? Our only hope is that God does not keep record of what we do. Not just a record of our wrongs, but a record of our rights. See, not even your own good works as a Christian can save you. But the good news today is that Jesus Christ welcomes sinners, unrighteous people, wicked people, evil people. He welcomes them and says, come to me. I will wash you clean. I will make you righteous. I will present you before my Father who is in heaven. All the things that you think disqualify you, that do disqualify you, Jesus can clear all of that away. And he can give you his righteousness. 
freely as a gift and count it to your record so that when God sees you, he sees Jesus Christ and his perfect record. So what gives you confidence that you will stand before God? Is it yourself? Brothers and sisters, I declare to you that there is a perfect record in Jesus Christ that will give you the fullest confidence that you can ever have to stand before God. That you can have confidence that you will stand before God on judgment day and be declared righteous. Not because of anything in yourself. Not because of any good work that you have done. And not because you have done all the evil in the world. But you will stand before Jesus Christ, before God the Father on that day, and be declared righteous because of Jesus. Because he gives it to you freely. And that is what Paul says, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Savior. It's all rubbish compared to that. I don't want anything else compared to Jesus Christ. So today, my call to you is to believe in Jesus. To forsake yourself. Put no confidence in the flesh. Do not trust in your righteousness. Trust in Jesus Christ. And flee to him. Flee from your sins. And turn to God. And know and have confidence that you can stand before God. Because of Jesus. Who loved you. And gave himself up for you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven. We do thank you for sending your son Jesus Christ. To save us and rescue us. We rejoice, Lord, that we have this free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, help our hearts to turn from sin. Help our hearts to turn from our own righteousness and turn to Jesus Christ. And give us confidence always in Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.